Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast on Friday, June the 29th. I'm Richard Lane. Cerebral palsy in children does not sound like an uplifting or positive issue, but this week's podcast feature gives a fascinating insight into the quality of life for 8 to 12-year-olds with cerebral palsy. Before that, some other highlights. Interim results of a Phase 3 study assessing the efficacy of a human papillomavirus vaccine to prevent cervical cancer are published in a research article. The key finding in this large international study is that the vaccine was around 90% effective in protecting against precursors of cervical cancer when given to young women. The results, though encouraging, do have some limitations, picked up in a comment linked to the main article. Tobacco control is the subject of an online comment linked to the lead editorial in this week's issue. In the comment, John Britton from the University of Nottingham in the UK gives a report card on Tony Blair's Labour government in the United Kingdom in relation to tobacco control and public health. While acknowledging that the Blair government has done more than previous administrations to reduce tobacco use, the comment states that many of the changes that have eventually been implemented could have been put into place far sooner, and there is still much to be done as Gordon Brown takes over at the helm in the UK government. And of course, on July the 1st, England will join Ireland, Scotland and Wales in implementing a smoking ban in public places. And the lead editorial comments that while the 2005 World Health Organization Framework Convention on Tobacco Control is crucial to improving public health globally, signing up to the Framework Convention is the easy bit. Countries need to implement tobacco reduction programs like those in parts of North America and Europe to really make an impact, especially in countries with the highest smoking rates like Russia and China. But back to this week's feature about cerebral palsy. This concerns quality of life estimates for children with this disability. Earlier, I spoke to one of the study authors, Professor Alan Culver from the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the UK. And I began by asking him what research up until now has told us about quality of life for children with cerebral palsy. I just first of all have to be clear what I'm meaning by quality of life. And that is very much a person, or in this case a child's, view of their own lives, what they think about their lives across a number of domains. And this is a relatively new area. It's something that the United Nations has attached importance to for a considerable time, asking children what they feel about their lives. But it tends not to be done, and it's been done very little in disabled children. Now, there have been studies, though, uh, in disabled children, and the results of children with cerebral palsy are a bit conflicting. So some suggest that... uh, Quality of life is rather poor, others that it's uh, fine. Uh, Some suggest that it's very much related to the severity of your uh, cerebral palsy, others not. And the problems with these studies, though, is that they're all unsatisfactory in one way. And I just want to mention these because the study that uh, we've reported, we think, deals with these problems. Many of the studies are very small, just uh, 30 to 50 children. Many of them are, are samples of children that just happen to go to a clinic or a special school. So they're not kind of randomly sampled from the population. Often the samples, in spite of saying quality of life, are in fact a parent's account of what they think their child's quality of life is. And also, and most importantly, sometimes they use uh, an instrument which doesn't really capture quality of life as I've defined it. They capture things like uh, a child's function or uh, how, how much they can do. Now, of course, those things are important, Uh, But inevitably, those things are going to be reduced in a disabled child because they don't have the same abilities to do certain things. But that doesn't mean that they feel their lives uh, are to be miserable. 
And so many of these so-called quality of life studies in the past have captured these things to do with function, and they've tended to find rather negative results. Indeed. And before I ask you to describe in a little more detail the methodology and findings of your study, it's also worth pointing out, isn't it, when we're talking about cerebral palsy, of course, it's quite a broad spectrum. In it is a broad spectrum. So children with cerebral palsy may have very different experiences and life experiences just within the fact that they've got CP in the first place. Certainly. I mean, the, the cerebral palsy per se means the problems with movement, but the children can also have problems with uh, communication. They can have epilepsy. Uh, they can have uh, problems with hearing and vision. And perhaps it's just worth saying at this point that they can also have severe learning difficulties. And in, in our study, we're not reporting on the children with cerebral palsy who also have very severe learning difficulties because they can't self-report. Therefore, it would be meaningless to talk about quality of life as I've defined it if one was uh, going to talk about such children because they don't have sufficient intellectual ability uh, to talk about their, their, their own perceptions. And moving on to your study, perhaps you could just outline briefly, please, the methodology here, how you went about actually doing the study. Well, the study was part of a wider study, so that the methodology was very well set out in that kind of way. First of all, we decided on uh, instruments to use, and in this case, we used uh, an instrument to measure quality of life called the Kid Screen, which we may come back to. That had to be, it was already available in some languages, but it had to be translated into others according to very strict translation criteria. Uh, we then sampled children in nine regions uh, of Europe where there were population-based registers of children with cerebral palsy. So we were able to randomly sample from those registers, and that's a very important point from the statistical analysis point of view. Then in the second year, um, all the, these, the, the children who agreed to take part were visited by a trained researcher in each country. And of course, that was a person who spoke their language and was trained to interact with children and so on. And it was done at home in a non-threatening situation. And then the, the third part, the third year has been devoted to analysis. So that kind of very simply is, is the, the methodology. And just returning to the kid screen method, if you like, or assessment technique, this sounds interesting. Can you just elaborate a little bit more? Well, the kid screen is not actually a, a method for assessment. It's an instrument, uh, a kind of questionnaire that children complete. And it is very, very important that this instrument was used. It wasn't developed by us, but this has been developed in the last uh, three years by another uh, multi-country European group. And the important things about this instrument are that the questions in it were developed from focus group work with children themselves. So it isn't a modified adult instrument. So that's a very important first thing. Secondly, it was determined from the outset to capture what I defined as quality of life early, earlier on, what a child feels about their lives across a number of domains. And thirdly, they had a, a large number of questions initially. There were hundreds. And then these were all reduced in a statistical way so that they were confident that finally the questions that were remained in the instrument were answered in a kind of consistent way by different children, whichever country they lived in or whether they were different ages or, different, or boys or girls. And it makes it possible then to use the scale in an arithmetic way. And that's very important from a statistical analysis point of view. So that's a bit technical, but in terms of the confidence that we have in our conclusions, it's very important to emphasize that. And then finally, and this was very useful for our study, they had already captured or collected data from the general population of children in all those countries. So we had that data available for comparison. Indeed. Can you just give 
a couple of examples of the types of questions that children could have been asked in the Kids Screen program? Well, first of all, each question is asked about the previous week. And then the child's asked to answer this question, has you experienced this not at all, uh, slightly, moderately, very, or extremely? And so the questions for family home life were, have your parents understood you? The next question, have you felt loved by your parents? Next question, have you been happy at home? And then I could give you some other questions, examples about feelings about yourself. Have you been happy with the way you are? Have you been happy with your clothes? Have you been worried about the way you look? There are 52 questions along those lines about what a child feels about different aspects of their life. That's fascinating. I'm also interested in this important issue, and this is to do with self-reporting. I guess two thoughts here. How reliable is self-reporting? Maybe that's a question that's impossible to answer, but there is some potential weakness there, isn't it, that the information you're getting isn't actually real, I suppose. Well, of course, that can apply to any subjective report. You could say that about adults. If you're asking adults what you feel about your life, it may not be real in the sense that it can be objectively verified, but of course that's the whole point of it. It isn't. It is subjective. I'd certainly take your point that in children there may be a concern that they don't understand the question. So although they may, uh, it's, uh, yes, they just may not understand it or they may just be randomly answering questions and so on. And uh, Dr. Raven Sieber and colleagues and others have actually demonstrated very clearly that children are able to answer these types of questions, that they can talk about their lives. There are some children who can't, um, and I've already mentioned the children with severe learning difficulties who will p- clearly can't do that. There are some children with milder learning difficulties. So if they've only reached the a kind of developmental age of three or four or five years, they wouldn't have the capacity to understand those types of questions. But that is very clear when, when one asks them because they, they will tend to say yes, yes, yes. I mean, well, often not, they'll answer them all in the same way. Also, we were very careful to make sure with a special test that had been devised by another group that children were able to understand the concept of a, of a scale, so things getting bigger or, or becoming better for the child. So very simply, it was to do with ordering blocks of, of wood of different sizes. Was the child able to understand, can you put them in an order where the smallest is at the bottom and the biggest at the top, that they're able to do that type of thing? So we were paid a, a, a lot of attention to that. And then there are some children who have uh, a normal intelligence but have difficulty in using language and in, in speaking words. This is sometimes a problem in cerebral palsy. And we were very keen to include those children. Obviously, more time was given for those children, but also if they used a special communication aid or there was one particular teacher who was able to understand them, whereas other people didn't, then we ensured that that communication aid or that teacher was present during the interview. Can you outline the results that you found? Well, in, uh, in summary, the results are that, first of all, looking at what are the factors that uh, in the children with cerebral palsy uh, seem to affect their quality of life. And the most striking factor is that the children who reported pain uh, in their lives, pain uh, from their cerebral palsy or from other things, that that had a pervasive effect on all the domains of quality of life. We captured a quality of life across 10 domains, um, and on each of those, the child was more likely to report lower quality of life on those domains if uh, the child was experiencing pain. We were somewhat surprised that it seemed to affect all the domains. Then there were six domains on which the severity of the cerebral palsy or the, the associated impairments to do with communication or so on had no effect. So that the child's uh, psychological well-being, that the, their sense of uh, social support, 
their sense of uh, self-perception, their sense of the, the environment in school, social acceptance and financial uh, resources, they were not affected by the child's impairments. But there were some, though, associations on the other domains. So that children who had poorer walking ability, as their walking ability decreased, then their sense of physical well-being did reduce. Children who had some learning difficulty, obviously not severe intellectual impairment because those children were excluded, but if they had some learning difficulties, they then reported that they had uh, a, a feeling of lower moods and emotions, that domain, and on the domain of autonomy that they felt they reported they had less autonomy. And then the children who had speech difficulties, difficulties with communication, they, their perception of their relationships with parents was poorer than children who uh, did not have speech difficulty. So that was some specific findings in relation to the different domains. And then when we compared the children with cerebral palsy with the general population, then the conclusion was absolutely, uh, we're co confident that there were no significant differences between the children with cerebral palsy and the children in the general population across uh, all the domains of the kids' screen. That is a very positive it is. finding and perhaps slightly surprising, possibly counterintuitive, do you think? Well, I think it, 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 it will be counterintuitive to some people and self-evident to others. It's the kind of thing which, once the result is there, people say, well, there it is. Um, we already knew that. But, of course, we didn't because some people would have had this different view. We, we've in, in the article, we discussed this a little bit. It's obviously for individual readers to come to their own views. I think that for a person, particularly an adult, who is, does not have a disability, they will then view what would it be like for me to be disabled. And that will, of course, for such a person, think, well, I wouldn't like to be disabled. I'm sure my quality of life would be worse. But that's an, an able-bodied person imagining what it would be like. And, and I think that is what most able-bodied people do think. But, of course, for the child with cerebral palsy, they've had, that, that is who they are. They've had cerebral palsy all their life. As they've developed their kind of self and sense of self, their cerebral palsy has been a part of that. And so they then, we postulate, incorporate this into their lives, and they grow up and have all the excitement of growing and developing, which all children have, and they take the ups and the downs of life in the same way that other children take the ups and downs of life. I hope, and presumably you do as well, that the outcome of this study will ho hopefully reassure, n not just, well, let's say again, that the that results of this study may well reassure families who have children with cerebral palsy either now or in the future. Well, we certainly hope it w will do that because this is really an optimistic finding. And certainly when I've reported these results at uh, certain meetings where many parents have been present, there has been a tremendous interest in this. And there was one father who came up to me uh, and said really quite emotionally, your study has helped me to think differently about my child. I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you very much for talking to us, Professor Carver. Right, it's a pleasure. Professor Alan Carver. And look out for the comment alongside this research article. Well, that concludes this week's podcast. Many thanks for listening. See you next week.